welcome to East and West, a show for helping us keep our spiritual bearings as we navigate this world around us. Wes Young here, continuing Season 4, an audiobook presentation of Undyne by Frederick de la Fouquet. If you're joining us for the first time, as I always say in Season 4, you should start at the beginning with Season 4, Episode 1. Today's episode, we're nearing the end of the book. We're in Chapter 8. Now, as a quick recap, in Chapter 7, Undyne orders a large stone blessed by her magic to be placed over the castle's fountain. This is to prevent her uncle Kilborn from gaining entrance into the castle and doing harm to Bertalda, whom the uncle hates. And with reason, for Bertalda is drawing the knight Huldbrand away from Undyne, his wife. In chapter 7, Huldbrand and Undyne rescue Bertalda from the dark valley and a very close call with uncle Kilborn. The three return to the castle as the complications continue. Now let us press on with Undyne, Chapter 8. After this last adventure, they lived at the castle undisturbed and in peaceful enjoyment. The knight was more and more impressed with the heavenly goodness of his wife, which she had so nobly shown by her instant pursuit and by the rescue she had effected in the Black Valley, where the power of Kilborn again commenced. Undyne herself enjoyed that peace and security which never fails the soul, as long as it knows distinctly that it is on the right path. And besides... In the newly awakened love and regard of her husband, a thousand gleams of hope and joy shone upon her. Bertalda, on the other hand, showed herself grateful, humble, and timid, without taking to herself any merit for so doing. Whenever Huldbrand or Undyne began to explain to her their reasons for covering the fountain or their adventures in the Black Valley, she would earnestly entreat them to spare her the recital, for the recollection of the fountain occasioned her too much shame and that of the Black Valley, too much terror. She learnt nothing more about either of them, and what would she have gained from more knowledge? Peace and joy had visibly taken up their abode at Castle Ringstetit. They enjoyed their present blessings in perfect security, and now imagined that life could produce nothing but pleasant flowers and fruits. In this happiness, winter came and passed away, and spring, with its foliage of tender green and its heaven of softest blue, succeeded to gladden the hearts of the three inmates of the castle. The season was in harmony with their minds, and their minds imparted their own hues to the season. What wonder, then, that its storks and swallows inspired them also with a disposition to travel. On a bright morning, while they were wandering down to one of the sources of the Danube, Huldbrand spoke of the magnificence of this noble stream, how it continued swelling as it flowed through countries enriched by its waters, with what splendor Vienna rose and sparkled on its banks, and how it grew lovelier and more imposing throughout its progress. It must be glorious to trace its course down to Vienna, Bertalda exclaimed with warmth, but immediately resuming the humble and modest demeanor she had recently shown, she paused and blushed in silence. This much moved Undyne. And with the liveliest wish to gratify her friend, she said, <laughs> What hinders our taking this little voyage? Bertalda leapt up with delight, 
and the two friends at the same moment begin painting this enchanting voyage on the Danube in the most brilliant colors. Huldbrand, too, agreed to the project with pleasure, only he once whispered with something of alarm in Undine's ear, But in that distance, Kulborn becomes possessed of his powers again. Oh, let him come, let him come, she answered with a laugh. I shall be there, and he dares do none of his mischief in my presence. Thus was the last impediment removed. They prepared for the expedition and soon set out upon it with lively spirits and the brightest hopes. But be not surprised, O man, if events almost always happen very differently from what you expect. That malicious power which lies in ambush for our destruction delights to lull its chosen victim asleep with sweet songs and golden delusions, while on the other hand the messenger of heaven often strikes sharply at our door to alarm and awaken us. During the first days of their passage down the Danube, they were unusually happy. The further they advanced upon the waters of this proud river, the views became more and more fair. But amid scenes otherwise most delicious, and from which they had promised themselves the purest delight, the stubborn Kilborn, dropping all disguise, began to show his power of annoying them. He had no other means of doing this, indeed, than by tricks, for Undine often rebuked the swelling waves or the contrary winds, and then the insolence of the enemy was instantly humbled and subdued. But his attacks were renewed, and Undine's reproofs again became necessary, so that the pleasure of the fellow travelers was completely destroyed. The boatmen, too, were continually whispering to one another in dismay, and eyeing their three superiors with distrust, while even the servants began more and more to form dismal surmises, and to watch their master and mistress with looks of suspicion. Holdbrand often said in his mind, This comes when like marries not like, when a man forms an unnatural union with a sea maiden. Excusing himself, as we all love to do, he would add, oh, I did not in fact know that she was a maid of the sea. It is my misfortune that my steps are haunted and disturbed by the wild humors of her kindred, but it is not my crime. By reflections like these, he felt himself in some measure strengthened. But, on the other hand, he felt the more ill humor, almost dislike, towards Undine. He would look angrily at her, and the unhappy wife but too well understood his meaning. One day, grieved by this unkindness, as well as exhausted by her unremitted exertions to frustrate the artifices of Kilborn, she, toward evening, fell into a deep slumber rocked and soothed by the gentle motion of the bark. But hardly had she closed her eyes when every person in the boat, in whatever direction he might look, saw the head of a man. Frightful beyond imagination, each head rose out of the waves, not like that of a person swimming, but quite perpendicular, as it firmly fastened to the watery mirror, and yet moving on with the bark. Everyone wished to show to his companion what terrified himself, and each perceived the same expression of horror on the face of the other. Only hands and eyes were directed to a different quarter, as if to a point where the monster, half laughing and half threatening, rose opposite to each. When, however, they wished to make one another understand the sight, and all cried out, Look there! No, there! The frightful heads of all became visible to each, and the whole river around the boat swarmed with the most horrible faces. All raised a scream of terror at the sight, and Undine started from sleep. As she opened her eyes, the deformed visages disappeared, 
But Huldbrand was made furious by so many hideous visions. He would have burst out in wild imprecations had not Undine with the meekest looks and gentlest tone of voice said, For God's sake, my husband, do not express displeasure against me here. We are on the water. The knight was silent and sat down, absorbed in deep thought. Undine whispered in his ear, Would it not be better, my love, to give up this foolish voyage and return to Castle Ringstetit in peace? But Hordebrand murmured wrathfully, So, I must become a prisoner in my own castle, and not be allowed to breathe a moment but while the fountain is covered. Would to heaven that your cursed kindred... Then Undine pressed her fair hand on his lips caressingly, and he said no more but in silence pondered on all that Undine had said before. Bertalda, meanwhile, had given herself up to a crowd of thronging thoughts. Of Undine's origin she knew a good deal, but not the whole, and the terrible Kilborn especially remained to her an awful and impenetrable mystery. Never, indeed, had she once heard his name. Musing upon these wondrous things, she unclasped, without being fully conscious of what she was doing, a golden necklace which Huldbrand on one of the preceding days of their passage, had bought for her of a traveling trader, and she was now letting it float in sport just over the surface of the stream, while in her dreamy mood she enjoyed the bright reflection it threw on the water, so clear beneath the glow of evening. That instant a huge hand flashed suddenly up from the Danube, seized the necklace in its grasp, and vanished with it beneath the flood. Bertalda shrieked aloud, and a scornful laugh came peeling up from the depth of the river. The knight could now restrain his wrath no longer. He started up, poured forth a torrent of reproaches, heaped curses upon all who interfered with his friends and troubled his life, and dared them all, water spirits or mermaids, to come within the sweep of his sword. Bertalda, meanwhile, wept for the loss of the ornament so very dear to her heart, and her tears were to Huldbrand as oil poured upon the flame of his fury, while Undine held her hand over the side of the boat, dipping it in the waves softly murmuring to herself, and only at times interrupting her strange, mysterious whisper to entreat her husband, Do not reprove me here, beloved. Blame all others as you will, but not me. You know why. And in truth, though he was trembling with excess of passion, he kept himself from any word directly against her. She then brought up in her wet hand, which she had been holding under the waves, a coral necklace, of such exquisite beauty, such sparkling brilliancy, as dazzled the eyes of all who beheld it. Take this, said she, holding it out kindly to Bertalda. I have ordered it to be brought to make some amends for your loss, so do not grieve any more, poor child. But the knight rushed between them, and snatching the beautiful ornament out of Undine's hands, hurled it back into the flood, and mad with rage exclaimed, So then you have still a connection with them. In the name of all witches, go and remain among them with your presence, you sorceress, and leave us human beings in peace. With fixed but streaming eyes, poor Undine gazed on him, her hand still stretched out, just as when she had so lovingly offered her brilliant gift to Bertalda. She then began to weep more and more, as if her heart would break, like an innocent, tender child, cruelly aggrieved, at last, wearied out, she said, Farewell, dearest, farewell. They shall do you no harm. Only remain true, that I may have power to keep them from you. But I must go hence. Go hence even in this early youth. Oh, woe, woe. 
What have you done? Oh, whoa, whoa. And she vanished, vanished over the side of the boat. Whether she plunged into the stream or whether, like water melting into water, she flowed away with it, they knew not. Her disappearance was like both and like neither. But she was lost in the Danube, instantly and completely. Only little waves were yet whispering and sobbing around the boat, and they could almost be heard to say, Oh, whoa, whoa, ah, remain true, remain true, whoa, whoa. But Huldbrand, in a passion of burning tears, threw himself upon the deck of the bark, and a deep swoon soon wrapped the wretched man in a blessed forgetfulness of misery. Shall we call it a good or an evil thing that our mourning has no long duration? I mean that deep mourning which comes from the very wellsprings of our being, which so becomes one with the lost objects of our love that we hardly realize their loss, while our grief devotes itself religiously to the honoring of their image until we reach that bourne which they have already reached. Truly, all good men observe in a degree this religious devotion, but yet it soon ceases to be that first grief. Other and new images throng in until, to our sorrow, we experience the vanity of all earthly things. Therefore, I must say, alas, that our mourning should be of such short duration. The Lord of Ringstetit experienced this, but whether for his good we shall discover in the sequel of this history. At first he could do nothing but weep, weep as bitterly as the poor gentle Undine had wept when he snatched out of her hand that brilliant ornament with which she so kindly wished to make amends for Bertalda's loss. And then he stretched his hand out, as she had done, and wept again like her with renewed violence. He cherished a secret hope that even the springs of life would at last become exhausted by weeping. And has not the like thought passed through the minds of many of us with a painful pleasure in times of sore affliction? Bertalda wept with him, and they lived together a long while at the castle of Ringstetet in undisturbed quiet honoring the memory of Undine and having almost wholly forgotten their former attachment. And therefore the good Undine, about this time, often visited Huldbrand's dreams. She soothed him with soft and affectionate caresses, and then went away again weeping in silence, so that when he awoke he sometimes knew not how his cheeks came to be so wet, whether it was caused by her tears or only by his own. But as time advanced, these visions became less frequent, and the sorrow of the night less keen. Still, he might never, perhaps, have entertained any other wish than thus quietly to think of Undine and to speak of her, had not the old fisherman arrived unexpectedly at the castle and earnestly insisted on Bertalda's returning with him as his child. He had received information of Undine's disappearance, and he was not willing to allow Bertalda to continue longer at the castle with the widowed knight. For, said he, whether my daughter loves me or not is at present what I care not to know, but her good name is at stake, and where that is the case, nothing else may be thought of. This resolution of the old fisherman, and the fearful solitude that on Bertalda's departure threatened to oppress the knight in every hall and passage of the deserted castle, brought to light what had disappeared in his sorrow for Undine. I mean, his attachment to the fair Bertalda, and this he made known to her father. The fisherman had many objections to make to the proposed marriage. The old man had loved Undine with exceeding tenderness, and it was doubtful to his mind that the mere disappearance of his beloved child could be properly viewed as her death. 
But were it even granted that her corpse were lying stiff and cold at the bottom of the Danube, or swept away by the current to the ocean, still, Bertalda had had some share in her death, and it was unfitting for her to step into the place of the poor, injured wife. The fisherman, however, had felt a strong regard also for the knight. This, and the entreaties of his daughter, who had become much more gentle and respectful, as well as her tears for Undine, all exerted their influence and he must at last have been forced to give up his opposition, for he remained at the castle without objection, and a messenger was sent off express to Father Heilman, who in former and happier days had united Undine and Huldbrand, requesting him to come and perform the ceremony at the knight's second marriage. Hardly had the holy man read through the letter from the Lord of Ringstetet, ere he set out upon the journey and made much greater dispatch on his way to the castle than the messenger from it had made in reaching him. Whenever his breath failed him in his rapid progress, or his old limbs ached with fatigue, he would say to himself, Perhaps I shall be able to prevent a sin. Then sink not, withered buddy, before I arrive at the end of my journey." And with renewed vigor he pressed forward, hurrying on without rest or repose, until late one evening he entered the shady courtyard of the castle of Ringstetet. The betrothed were sitting side by side under the trees, and the aged fisherman in a thoughtful mood sat near them. The moment they saw Father Heilman, they rose with a spring of joy and pressed round him with eager welcome. But he, in a few words, asked the bridegroom to return with him into the castle. And when Huldbrand stood mute with surprise and delayed complying with his earnest request, the pious preacher said to him, I do not know why I should want to speak to you in private. What I have to say as much concerns Bertalda and the fisherman as yourself, and what we must at some time hear, it is best to hear as soon as possible. Are you then so very certain, Knight Huldbrand? that your first wife is actually dead? I can hardly think it. I will say nothing indeed of the mysterious state in which she may be now existing. I know nothing of it with certainty, but that she was a most devoted and faithful wife is beyond all dispute, and for fourteen nights past she has appeared to me in a dream, standing at my bedside, wringing her tender hands in anguish, and sighing, Ah, prevent him, dear father, I am still living, she says, Ah, save his life, ah, save his soul. I do not understand what this vision of the night could mean. Then came your messenger, and I have now hastened hither not to unite, but, as I hope, to separate what ought not to be joined together. Leave her, Holdbrand, leave him, Bertalda. He still belongs to another, and do you not see on his pale cheek his grief for his lost wife? That is not the look of a bridegroom, and the spirit says to me that if you do not leave him, you will never be happy. The three felt in their inmost parts that Father Heilman spoke the truth, but they would not believe it. Even the old fisherman was so infatuated that he thought it could not be otherwise than as they had lately settled amongst themselves. They all, therefore, with a determined and gloomy eagerness, struggled against the representations and warnings of the priest, until, shaking his head and oppressed with sorrow, he finally quitted the castle, not choosing to accept their offered shelter even for a single night, or indeed so much as to taste a morsel of the refreshment they brought him. Huldbrand persuaded himself, however, 
that the priest was a mere visionary and sent at daybreak to a monk of the nearest monastery who, without scruple, promised to perform the ceremony in a few days. My goodness, in the ending of chapter 8, do you not see the illustration, the parable of everything that has been wrong with human history from the beginning? Read the Bible and see if it is not a repeated telling of this same tale. The truth is right there. Thou shalt not. Or if you want to look at it from a more positive sense, as in a command, like a sin of omission, sin of commission kind of thing, thou shalt the Lord, the Word, the God, the Kingdom, the Creator is saying this is the way, walk in it. And man, even knowing in his heart that this is the way, that Father Hyman does speak the truth, that I should not marry Bertalda, that Undine is alive, that Undine's last words to me were be faithful, only remain faithful. You've already banished me off of your boat and banished me out of your life with your rage, but at least still save your soul. Be faithful to me. And they know it says in the text, they know that Hyman speaks the truth, but they just won't accept it. So what do they do? They send to someone who will give them what they want to hear, some monk or other at some monastery or other. And that's not an indictment against monks or anything like that. It's just saying we're going to find someone who will do it without scruple because Hyman is a man of faith and he is sticking to what he knows is right and against what he knows is wrong, which, by the way, we also know deep in our hearts is right, and we all know deep in our hearts is wrong, and we know He's telling truth. But we're going to go our own way. We're going to persist in our own agenda instead. It reminds me, I mean, of picking an example from the Bible, but the one I like the best is when Ahab was facing military trouble, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, who is more faithful to God than Ahab, certainly, says, well, can't we call on a prophet? And so what does Ahab do? Well, he calls all these prophets, and they all say, oh, yeah, go to battle. You're going to be successful. This is going to be great. Continue with your own plans. This is going to work out great. And Jehoshaphat says, well, can't we call in a prophet of the Lord? And then Ahab, the king of Israel, says these words, quote, there is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. This is from 1 Kings chapter 22. Great example of the overall underlying problem of all humanity. God is saying this is the way, walk in it. And man in his desire to follow his own plans and his own prerogatives and his own pleasures and his own agendas is saying, no, you're always telling me no. God, you and your prophets and your word, you're always telling me no. You're always stopping me from what I want. And so I'm going to find prophets, books, ideas and ideologies that correlate and support whatever it is I want to do. And believe me, there's a wealth of that out there. Whatever it is you want to do, you can find some writer or some thinker somewhere to support it. That doesn't make it the way, the truth, and the life. Christ's way is narrow. There's only one way for a person to be born into this world. And there's only one way for a person to be born again in this world. These are narrow avenues. You can't pick some other way or establish some other truth without missing the kingdom. Let us all then press forward listening to the Father Heilmans in our life, not seeking some monk or some whatever that will fulfill what we've got in mind. Let us listen to what we know is true in our hearts and our consciences. The text says, Holdbrand knew, Bertalda knew, even the fishermen knew, but their own bad design had such an inertia to it, as do ours. Eve had looked at the apple. No sin yet, but the momentum is building. Eve touched the apple. 
no sin yet, but the momentum is building. You've talked about the apple, explaining it and the regulations to the serpent, and the momentum is raising to a fever pitch. She picks it. And there is a point where it's very difficult to stop a train moving that powerfully before it's too late, and she takes the bite. And then from that long, long, long lost parentage of all of us, the apple is shared with the whole human race. And we're fighting that same battle on the only battlefield that we know in eternity, and that is the battlefield of today. This day, I truly believe that everyone who will open their ears has in their conscience an idea of what would be the right things to not do and courageously what would be the right things to do. And our flesh desires us to pursue the things we ought not and to cower away from the things that we ought. Let us see one more thing in the parable of Undine. She's gone, but she warned, Remain faithful even in my absence. You've treated me badly. I've been nothing but good to you. You persecuted me and exiled me and kicked me out. But even in my absence, remain faithful. And here's Jesus. He came. He showed us the way, the truth, the life. He did nothing but heal and love and speak the truth. And he was kicked out of his own vineyard, crucified and sent away. But he says before he leaves, even in my absence, remain faithful. Because the paradigm is going to shift at my return. And what's up is going to look down and what's down is going to look up because the world system is completely confused about the nature of what really matters and what's really valuable. And we'll all be able to see clearly when the king returns to sit on the throne of his kingdom. But I sense that it matters a great deal, both to the king and his subjects, what we do in the meantime. We'll see how Holdbrand handles it in chapter 9. And one day at a time, we'll see how each of us handles it in our own life. May God keep us faithful by His grace and His mercy. In Jesus' name, press on.